5: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another day of destiny in the election battlegrounds as Labour launched their Race and Faith manifesto with a rather loud background noise of anti-Semitism dominating the proceedings. Jeremy Corbyn wants to tell us all that the British Empire was bad, that colonialism ruined the world, and that discrimination based on race must be reported and tackled. Meanwhile, the Chief Rabbi has written for the Times this morning and said that British Jews are, in his words, gripped by anxiety at the idea of Jeremy Corbyn getting into number 10 down Street. Ephraim Mervis even goes as far as to say the very soul of our nation is at stake. Are you convinced that Labour are doing all they can do on anti-Semitism? Are you convinced by Jeremy Corbyn, who consistently tells us that all he has ever done is fight for equality and fight against discrimination all of his life? We'll be hearing from both sides of the divide this morning, uh, because somebody, somewhere, is going to have to make up their mind about this. Is anti-Semitism ripping apart the Labour Party, or are they dealing with it properly now that they're being investigated by the equalities in human rights commission 0344 499 coming up later on we'll explore what effect obesity is having on the brains of young people we'll be asking why theatre goers are now being warned about graphic content that might shock them on their nights out and we'll be asking if you would want to have google smart speakers actually reading bedtime stories to your children i mean what could possibly go wrong right 0344 you're listening to me mike graham right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world it is talk radio
0: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
5: So this morning on many of the front pages, the chief rabbi of this nation uh, has issued a stark warning. Uh, He's basically saying, uh, Ephraim Mervis, that the vast majority of British Jews are gripped by anxiety at the idea of Jeremy Corbyn inside number 10 Downing Street. He's accused the Labour leader of allowing the poison of anti-Semitism to take root in Labour and said it could no longer claim to be the party of diversity, equality and anti racism The problem, of course, for the Labour Party is that this is the very day that they have chosen to unveil what they have called their Race and Faith Manifesto. This basically is a document in which they're going to to be telling us that the British Empire was a terrible thing, uh, that we did awful ghastly things around the world uh, in the name of colonialism, and that any kind of discrimination, particularly against anyone uh, of a different skin colour or of a different creed or of a different religion, is somehow the worst thing that they could possibly imagine. Now, how can you put those two things together on the very same day? Uh, let's ask Adam uh, Kayler, who is from the Jewish Telegraph. Adam, a very good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I don't suppose the, the Chief Rabbi was aware of the timing of, of his letter to the Times and his piece in the Times, um, but it's very bad timing for the Labour Party, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, we were only aware of it very late last night,
5: so
1: I'm right.
0: pretty sure he wasn't aware of it either Right, But, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's bad timing, but it's not as if the conversation about Labour anti-Semitism has disappeared. It's been there constantly for four years, so... You know, it's not not a surprise to anybody that he's come up with
5: his comments. Well, no, it's not. And I mean, the funny thing about it is really that every time it's put to Jeremy Corbyn that the Labour Party is the only second, uh, is only the second political party uh, after the BNP to be investigated for anti-Semitism and for having this terrible problem going through it, um, he always says. You know, we're doing everything to fight anti-Semitism. It's a terrible stain uh, on our culture. It's a dreadful situation. You know, he keeps saying the same thing, but nothing appears to be changing.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we always get the same comments. There's a joke amongst pretty much every Jewish journalist in the country that you ask the Labour Party for a comment on an anti-Semitism story, you'll get the exact same reply. Yeah. So they're fighting it, and they don't comment on the individual cases, so we've all given up. Um, well, that's the yeah, trouble, he, isn't it? He, yeah, and he himself um, has never ever apologised or shown any contrition for any of the incidents that he's been involved in.
3: Well, Um, exactly.
5: I mean, the problem for me seems to be that it's almost as though um, if they wanted to do something about it, they could have done a lot more about it. And it it worries me slightly that that there's a reason why they're not doing something about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's a shame is the the race manifesto has got a lot of good stuff in it. You can't argue with that. But they've done nothing or not enough so far and nothing is going to change. Mm. While he is still in power and while, uh, you know, there are certain people in his office that have the same thought process that he does, nothing will change. And it's too late for him to do anything about it now, to be honest.
5: I mean, do you fear that it has something to do with their, um, their kind of uh, positioning themselves, as it were, uh, so that they for, they, for example, can garner votes from other communities uh, if they don't do as much about anti-Semitism perhaps as they ought to?
0: I, yeah, I mean, I hesitate to say it, but yeah. Well, that's the—I mean,
5: that's the thing that everybody hesitates to say, but it kind of needs to be said, I think, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, put it this way: we're, we're a community of about two hundred and fifty thousand. There's far bigger communities in the UK than us.
5: Yeah. I mean, we were listening uh, on Julie Harley Brewer's show this morning to Stephen Pollard, uh, a colleague colleague of yours on another newspaper, uh, who basically said, you know, if this was not anti-Semitism, but it was homophobia, for example, uh, or even if it was Islamophobia, you can't imagine that it would be dragging on like this.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, if the scale of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party was at the same scale of anti-Semitism in Labour, it would be absolute uproar.
5: Right. And where do you, as far as you know, where is the actual um, uh, investigation as far as the Equalities and Human Rights Commission going? You know, where is that?
0: Um, as far as I know, it's going to be completed sometime between January and March. OK. Uh, they're still accepting submissions. There's a lot of submissions been made already. Um, and they're just wading through it all, as far as I'm aware.
5: Mm. And as far as they're kind of looking at the, uh, the history of this nation, colonialism today uh, and the British Empire, I mean, would it have been wiser for them not to have done that?
0: Um, yes, <laughs> in, in <a> short answer.
5: <laughs> I mean, in terms of just anyway, I mean, I don't mean in, 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 carry on with it and launching it today uh, as they were always going to. Um, just it might have been a good idea not to go into it given that the investigation is ongoing.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, as I say, the, the actual manifesto and stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, for for instance, the ending the universal credit, which will end the two child cap, which will help a lot of Caridy like really ultra orthodox families. Um, but there are certain things in that manifesto that are also not very helpful, and especially the one where they want to ensure. Um, the impartiality of the EHRC. Well, why are you bringing that up now when you're being investigated by them? Let it go. Yeah. Don't mention it until it's all finished because mm. it makes them look a bit that.
5: Right. And as far as the Jewish community is concerned, I mean, obviously there are some Jews who are still quite happy to support the Labour Party and some Jews who are quite happy, uh, no doubt, to vote for the Labour Party. How, how do you explain that?
0: It's a minority. This, this is the thing. I mean, I'm not discounting their opinions. They're quite entitled to them. Um, Half up it all you want. But this is the thing that galls me about the Labour Party. They will only communicate with the extreme fringes of the Jewish community. Mm. Groups like Judas, who have been excommunicated by pretty much every mainstream Jewish person and Jewish organisation in the country. Why won't the party go with the Board the of deputies or the Jewish Leadership Council? Why won't they speak to Jewish media? You know, why are they only dealing with these fringe groups? And there are lots of good people in Labour. I'm not going to sit here and say everyone's an to team out in Labour because yeah. they're not. I have got friends in the Labour Party. But it, it doesn't make any sense why they refuse to deal with mainstream with right. the mainstream organisations.
5: And what do your friends in the Labour Party say to you, though, when you have conversations about this?
0: I get a lot of apologies. Right. Um, I mean, there's, there's people who work for the party that I'm friends with. Mm. They speak to me about it. They say, you know, what can we do? What more can be done? And they don't like the answer because the answer is, or oh, change your leadership.
1: Yeah.
5: Well, 13 Um, Labour MPs have quit the party since 2017. Some of them have gone to other places, some of them have gone to other parties, some of them have left uh, politics business altogether. Um, But here's what uh, Rabbi Mervis has to say. Um, How complicit in prejudice would a leader of Her Majesty's opposition have to be be considered unfit for office? Would associations with those who have incited hatred against Jews be enough would describing as friends those who endorsed the murder of Jews be enough? It seems not. I mean, that's a pretty um, serious allegation.
0: Yeah, and when you put these to, to Jeremy Corbyn, he just waffles through it. I yeah. mean he he came up with the most ludicrous responses when questioned by Channel Four about why he used the word friends for Hamas and Hezbollah. Mm. He said it was just a turn of phrase. But you know, he's been pr- on um, platforms praising these people, um, and he, and there was a video the other day of him hugging someone who said, you know, jihad, jihad, jihad against Jews and Israelis. Yeah. So he can't explain his way out of every situation. At some point he's got to face up to his own past and stop using the standard company line of, oh, we're dealing with it, because right.
5: we're not. And in their launch today of this uh, uh, business of the race and faith manifesto, there yeah. doesn't appear to be any mention of the Jewish faith at all, as far as I can tell.
0: Um, no, there is. There's, I mean, we were sent a press release um, of all the specific Jewish points. I don't know. There seems to be a, a bit of miscommunication with people thinking there's nothing Jewish in it, but there actually is.
5: Well, I've got uh, I've got a note from from the people who've done it, um, and, and it's not in, in anything I've got. So maybe they're just getting selective uh, press releases, I don't know.
0: I, yeah, I think so. I mean, we the Jewish newspaper's got a separate Jewish press releases. So
1: right.
0: Yeah. Um, but no, there, there is there is quite a bit of Jewish stuff. That, you know, um, talking about maintaining funding for the Community Security Trust and dealing with far-right extremism and anti-Semitism, um, you know, about Jewish education, increasing that in, in uh, national curriculum overall. So, I mean, there is a lot of good Jewish stuff in there. Right. Um, but Chief Rabbi's comments will pretty much overshadow it, so kind of gone by the wayside
1: really yes
5: well we'll be talking to somebody about that a little bit later on because we we haven't got anything and under the new policy announcements that i've got it's economic empowerment race and the economy uh, it's all about education uh, for black and um, minority ethnic people far-right extremism is, is attached uh labor's existing commitments to bame and faith communities uh, it's got inequality created by the tories it's got labor leading the way in bame uh, leadership um, but it doesn't have anything as far as I can see, in, in right. what I've got here, about the Jewish so faith, I'll,
0: I'll give you a, I'll give you a direct quote um, from what I have just uh, pulled up. It says, uh, they'll defend and celebrate the Jewish way of life, they'll respect and protect the rights of Jewish people to practice their religion, including wearing of religious dress and symbols and the production of kosher meat, which is a huge thing for the Jewish community because, you know, the, the slaughter of kosher meat has been under threat for quite a long time. Yeah. And banned in certain countries. So the fact that they're willing to protect that is actually quite a
5: big thing. Yeah, it is quite a big thing. I'm just, I'm just curious as to why it's not mentioned a little bit more uh, than it has been. So, I mean, as far as the chief rabbi's uh, quotes are concerned, how have they been received by, by the bulk of the Jewish community in this country? Um, are people I'm, pleased that he's come out with this? Does it make it more difficult for the Jewish community, you know, no, around, I'm, I'm, around I'm, an election?
0: Yeah, I mean, no, we're pleased. The the thing with the chief rabbi is he is very apolitical. He he doesn't wade into politics very often. He barely even says that he promotes Tottenham Hotspur, uh, supports Tottenham Hotspur, because he fears he will alienate Arsenal supporting Jews. You know, he for him to do this is it's a big, it really is a big thing. Um, But again, the reaction to it on social media specifically. Um, it, it's as horrendous as usual. With some people saying he's not my chief rabbi, he doesn't speak for me. How dare he right. speak like that? Picking up more traction than me as a as someone who supports the chief rabbi saying what he speaks for me. So the reaction is as to be expected, I suppose. But the the majority of British Jews are very happy he's come out and said this. But mm-hmm. I mean, the other side of it is I don't want to wake up every morning and see anti-Semitism on you know Sky News again because it means we're in the news and we don't want to always be that, you know.
5: Well, that's the other problem with this kind of story, isn't it? Because what you don't want to be is appearing to be part of a community that's always whining and moaning about being treated yeah. differently to everybody else. And I, yeah. you know, I'm not suggesting that for for a minute is the case. But you know, you can see how other people might criticize the Jewish community for that.
0: Yeah, I and um, I get it. I, you know, I'm sick of reporting on it. Some of my colleagues here are sick of reading about it. You know, we don't want to be in the news all the time. We wish that we could just go about our daily life and not have to hear that you know, one of the mainstream British political parties as being anti-Semitic again.
5: Yeah, it seems, I mean, for my own purposes, I mean, it just seems ridiculous to me that we're even having to have this conversation. It seems like, you know, we're living in 2019, you would think that people who are more or less all the time telling us how uh, uh, undiscriminatory they are uh, and how they believe in equality for all people um, suddenly still have this problem about Jewish people.
0: Yeah, and the fact that it has its own hashtag, of hashtag Labour anti-semitism, which has been going around for four years, yeah. is more ridiculous.
5: It really is. So, I mean, the Jewish Telegraph obviously covering this, Adam. I mean, what are you going to be doing about this in the paper tomorrow?
0: Um, it's a, Well, we're a weekly, so we don't come out for Friday. Which okay. Gives- Better than advantage, Um, but it's a forever changing story. We don't even start writing about it till
5: Thursday. (laughs) No right. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of material for you, Adam. Thanks very much indeed, Adam Kayler from the Jewish Telegraph. They're telling us about how um, the Jewish faith uh, is still under attack from Labour Party Uh, people who are uh, Jewish uh, in Jewish communities are sick to death of having to deal with it. They don't particularly want to be complaining all the time. The chief rabbi uh, says himself that he really does not wish to be in this position but he says he feels that he is left with no choice because it's a new poison, he says, which has taken hold in Labour, sanctioned from the very top. He's making absolutely no bones about this at all. The chief rabbi, as you just heard from Adam there, uh, is an apolitical figure. He doesn't have any party political allegiance. This is the guy who is basically saying uh, that enough is enough. It is time for the Labour Party to do something about it. The question I've got for you is, are they doing enough? Are you convinced that they're doing enough? Do you actually believe that the chief rabbi of this country uh, is overreacting to what is going on? Lots of questions. I need some answers. 0344 499 1000. This is your election station. This is Talk Radio.
0: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
5: So, according to a story in The Times today, it would appear that basically children uh, who are suffering uh, from obesity may also be suffering uh, from several other things as well. Uh, And obesity can, in fact, cause brain damage. According to the piece in The Times, being extremely overweight can trigger inflammation in the body's nervous system. Let's talk uh, to Dr. Lawrence Buckman to find out what this is all about. Dr. Lawrence, very good morning to you. Good morning. This is an interesting study, isn't it? Researchers performed MRI scans on the brains of more than 100 teenagers and tracked the movement of water through the white matter. So tell us a bit about the science of uh, of all this. What's behind it? You know, how is it that they've managed to come to these conclusions?
2: Well, I think the the only conclusion you can come to is that the brains of some obese teenagers are not the same as the brains of non-obese teenagers. I don't think you can go from there to saying there's definite brain damage... Mm. You could also put it the other way around. You could say that people become obese because their brains are not the same as other people's. Right. Uh, Indeed, I would say that's much more likely, that people who become overweight, uh, almost without their ability to control it, may well suggest there's something different about their brains. Oh, so
5: so before they became obese, there was something different as well?
2: That's right, yeah. Mm. And I think, uh, I mean, we're too early to judge. All we know is they're not the same. uh, And... What those differences are and why they happen, I think, is still a fascinating area of study. There's no doubt that some people cannot lose weight and cannot control their eating uh, in a way that other people quite clearly can. Right. Um, Most of us know when we're full up, but there are people who never know that they're full up.
5: And is that something which you can teach yourself, or is it something that you can't ever kind of get away from?
2: Well, you can learn how to control your weight. Uh, and you can learn how to control your eating but some people find it remarkably difficult to do so and don't recognize when they've eaten enough most of us stop eating when we're full but yeah, there right. are people who just can't right and learning for them is much harder and this may well this study may well be the beginning of explaining why that is so.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's probably a good idea that we do find out, because I'm looking at uh, a similar uh, statistic here, where it says uh, obesity-linked hospital admissions pass the one million mark for the first time. Um, So this is clearly a problem that's not going away.
2: Oh, uh, obesity is an epidemic. Um, You only have to walk around any city centre to notice how many people there are overweight, and cast your memory back Mm. 10 years, or 20 years, and you notice there's a lot of people, and also they're eating food accessible food and sadly cheap food that is very unhealthy it's easier to get and it goes down nicely and it tastes nice Mm. so people do it more.
5: Yeah, what about this that last month there was a different study of almost 3,000 children uh, aged from 9 to 11 uh, in which it found that basically those with weight problems fared worse in problem solving tests because they had a thinner cerebral cortex
2: Yes, and I think this is related to the study you've just been talking about there's <clears throat> something happens to people who eat too much that they have thinner cortices. Now, it may turn out, again, it's the other way round, and actually people with a thin cerebral cortex overeat. Mm. Uh, uh, which way round I don't know. But there's a connection between these two, which we'd have to establish. There is no doubt that eating too much does all sorts of things to you. It exposes you to illnesses you wouldn't be exposed to otherwise, uh, particularly a whole list of cancers Um, and other inflammatory diseases and uh, a list of psychological diseases and diabetes, of course, and high blood pressure. So it's a long, long list of things that that, uh, overweight can do.
5: And given what you've been saying about, you know, if you go back 10 years, it wasn't the same when you looked around the the general sort of uh, landscape of a city or it wasn't the same 20 years ago. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the availability of food then?
2: Yes. I think a lot of it is geared to what foods are around and how we live with our food. So the era of home cooking is much less prevalent than it was 20 years ago. People tend to buy ready meals. They tend to buy uh, uh, takeaways rather than to cook themselves. And what you cook yourself is likely to have less sugar and salt in it and less fat.
5: And that is is the other problem as well, because I know when I was growing up in the 70s, I mean, there literally weren't very many places to go and buy food. And when you did get to the shops to buy the food, there wasn't very much of it. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, no. The
2: choices for people who want to eat the wrong food are much better now than they were. And as a result, people choose sweet things, fatty things, things with a stronger taste. Um, You can make things taste strongly spicy that don't have to include salt. or sugar. You can make it quite easily without that. You don't have to add fat to food, yet it's surprising how many foods that don't need fat have it added if you buy ready meals.
5: Yes. And if that's added in, presumably that makes it all that more kind of um, uh, addictive, I suppose.
2: Yes. uh, people, Particularly sugar, people become addicted to sugar, and they can recognise the difference between sweetener, which isn't sugar, and sugar itself. Mm. And people get a buzz out of sugar. You don't get a buzz out of uh, sweeteners. Uh, Not the same way, I'm sure.
5: No, I'm sure. And most of the parties have got some kind of policy on this. I mean, would you favour more stringent laws, as it were, being made, or more stringent taxes being put on some of this stuff?
2: Uh, I I favour a sugar tax. I think that's a good idea. But if I was picking one move, um, which would be relatively easy to do, I would stop councils giving permission for fast food outlets to be provided near schools. If I was choosing... Something that was easy, you just change the licensing regs and you could stop that very quickly.
5: I mean, we've been talking this morning already about the way that uh, that history is taught in schools. I mean, my argument would always be as well that they could do a lot better in terms of the kind of food that they provide the kids inside the schools as well because they teach them about uh, how they should be eating healthily. But then they serve up this horrible mixture of fatty foods and Cornish pasties and pizzas and hamburgers. And, you know, every school my kids have been in has been a bad uh, provider of food.
2: Yes, that's because people want it cheap. And I understand why parents, hard-pressed, uh, don't want to spend too much money on food. But the fact is, school food doesn't have to be uh, anti-nutritious. and it, you, It's quite easy to make nice food that kids will eat. Yeah, but it's not that uh, cheap
5: either. I mean, if you've got two kids at school, you're paying minimum 20 quid a week for their, for their school dinners, right? Whatever it is that they have. You know, that adds yeah. up for a lot of people.
2: It certainly does. And so I can understand why parents want something that's relatively easy to provide and not too expensive. Yeah. And it does cost more money sometimes to make good food, mainly in the preparation time, because you're having to prepare food as opposed to just get it out of a packet and microwave it. Right. But,
5: but I mean, most of these school dinners are provided by uh, outside catering companies, aren't
2: they? Yes, but they're in it to make money. Yeah, they're, of course. They're to make a profit. So they're going to do it at the cheapest possible cost. And that means making it super-efficient food. Well, sometimes we have to eat food that isn't quite so super-efficient, that actually is healthier for us.
1: Yeah, if well, that's went the thing. And I mean...
2: dinner at... Go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, if you go through what, what kids are given at school, it wouldn't be, take long to work out how you could improve the nutritional value of it and make it less unhealthy quite quickly. Yeah. Um, but, of course, that requires a will and also probably money. Um, and changing your suppliers so you don't have suppliers that that supply food that's unhealthy.
5: Yeah. No, I mean, it's a big business, and I'm sure that it's quite complicated uh, and more complicated than than either you or I think it is to make food for a 1,000 people in any kind of situation. Mm. But it just seems to me that that they could do it a lot better and they could do it a lot more healthily. And basically, you've got children who are, you know, to to a large extent, some children, who are having the main meal of their day at school. Yes,
2: and therefore, it's even more important to make sure the food is healthy and appropriate.
5: Yeah, absolutely right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed, Dr Lawrence Buckman, former chair of the BMA GP Committee, and he's also still a GP in North London. Fascinating study this, because there is obviously some kind of connection, uh, either before the person becomes obese or after they become obese, uh, to what it is that they can do about that, and whether or not their brain actually operates in a slightly different way. But let's talk a little bit about school dinners as well, because I think the school dinner conversation uh, needs to to be had nobody's really talked about it as far as the uh, manifestos are concerned nobody's talked about anything to do with how the food is provided in the schools there's lots of talk about giving more money to schools there's lots of talk about giving more teachers to schools getting more black and ethnic minority teachers into schools but nothing about the way the kids actually are eating while they are at school which is a very important part of the daily education system isn't it 0344 a 499 a 1000 is the number uh, this is your election station this is talk radio
4: Dangerous mid morning debate with the great dictator.
0: The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
5: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499, 1,000 is the number. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio. Uh, You can text the word uh, TALK to 87222 and then send your message along there as well. Don't forget, uh, we've got a podcast coming out of this show. Uh, Also, yesterday, uh, I recorded the first of uh, something called Off Air uh, with Mike Graham, which was actually filmed downstairs in the studios here. It's myself and Matt Kelly from The New European. Uh, It's like a podcast, except you can watch it as well. So it's even better. Uh, You can currently see it on Facebook, you can currently see it on the Talk Radio Twitter feed, uh, on my Twitter feed as well. It's also on YouTube. uh, If you want to get yourself organised onto that, look for the link. Uh, I will be sending it out repeatedly uh, over the next couple of days. Right now, though, we're going to go back to the phones. Dion uh, is in Langley. Dion uh, is a regular caller to the show. The last time we spoke to Dion, though, uh, he was about to undergo a bit of surgery uh, for cancer. Uh, So I'm delighted to say Dion's back. Dion, how are you doing, man?
6: Yeah, I'm all right. Um, been out nearly a month now.
5: Yeah, good. So you had um, you had an operation on on your jaw, right?
6: Yeah, they removed my jaw, my tongue, okay, and my bottom plate, and then took the bone out my lower left leg, and replaced the jaw with it. Okay, so so, so it's coming
5: along. You, you have you had yes. to have you had to learn to kind of speak again?
6: Yes, I have, and it's. Um, Know, I've got a sense of humour, so. Well, it's well, it's.
5: I mean, you, I can I, I can make out what you're saying. So, so what? Yeah, what, what yeah. I, and, and so, I'm pleased you're able to come back on and talk to us. So, so what do you want to say today?
6: Um, that I beat children. Yeah. Um, I don't see a lot of it. I mean, I live next door to a corner shop. I mean, there's a lot of family around there. Yeah. But I've noticed, the you obese know, these children, it's normally the is as well.
5: Yes, I think I think that's right. Whenever you see. Uh, you know, overweight kids, they tend to have overweight parents, don't they?
6: Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, I'm next door, so if I'm in there. You know, it's just the rubbish they buy him. And if the kids don't get it, yeah. you know, he starts screaming and jumping up and down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is,
5: the trouble is, they seem to, the people who, who are doing it are eating sort of more or less constantly. I was I was talking to someone the other day. Uh, she was in a, um, that sort of health spa, right? And there was a woman in a jacuzzi, eating a packet of crisps. You know, oh, somebody's on the phone for you, Dion. I'm going to let you go. Uh, let's go to Susan, who's in uh, Holland on sea. Hello, oh, Susan. Hello, Mike. Hey. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad
4: Dion is keeping yes. okay. It's very good news.
5: It is good news, and he's yeah, and he probably and his his speech yes. will probably improve with time. Oh yes, won't it?
4: that is really good. I hope he keeps well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now while I was calling, I think what they've got to do, they've got to start. See, as you say, there's a lot of children now that have been brought up on microwave foods, all that sort of thing. Yes. Now, I think they should, I mean, I'm saying they should, they should have sort of either day classes, evening classes for parents, and the children can go along, I suppose they want to see their mum cook, to go back to doing what we all were brought up on, home cooking, yeah. as much as possible. A treat, now and again, doesn't hurt you. We've all had treats and that, but not on the scale it's on now with the takeaway food. Well, it's, um, so, it's so easy you
5: know. to now order takeaway food oh. because you just need an app and on you your don't phone. you know, as
4: you say, you know what you're putting in your own food. Yes. You know what you're giving. And, um, I think really now they've got uh, on the television, radio books and that where people and schools and, and everywhere, workplaces, if they get this message across that going back to the home cooking as much as possible, and there will be some people that might not be able to cook because they've been used to having what their parents gave them, yeah. you know, and if they can get into that pattern and also of course, like as you know, when we were children and they're in it more now we used to run about more and play out we were always hungry as children Mm. we were but the dinners were lovely you know what i mean what our parents did they were weren't
5: they but i bet you if you if you went back and sort of watched yourself when you were younger you you probably ate a lot less as well than you get now for example if you go
4: i I know i've always had a very good appetite and don't get me wrong i mean i do like chocolate that sort of thing Mm. i still like chocolate now but as I say, it is getting a very serious problem. It's not that, but some... I mean, there they were big-made children and people in our time, but not on the scale it is now. And when you see some children going to school, the size of their uniform jackets... We never saw that sort of thing when we were growing up. No, that's right. And I, I think it's well, I do, it, it is very, very serious, and it's something that's got to be done.
5: I think so. You know? And I'm not. And I mean, I know that people will say why all's going on about school dinners, but I think school dinners are a really important part of it because there's no point in telling children you must eat healthily, and then you you, you wait in line for your school dinner, and it's pizza or it's a oh, it's a no. cornish I mean, pasty or something. You know, a
4: treat occasionally. If you know, everyone goes out, don't they? That's all right as a treat, but not living on it every single day of your life
5: you know no you're absolutely right Susan thanks very much indeed for your call it is true to say um, that there is much more food available out there now it is also true to say and this is what I was about to say to Susan there that when you were a kid you probably didn't if you went out if you ever went out to a pub to a pub lunch or something like that the amount of food that you would eat would be considerably smaller than the amount of food you will now get um, if you actually ask for a pub lunch. Because pub lunches now have gone up in size. You remember when um, you know you go to uh, McDonald's before the days of uh, you know super size me, you wouldn't have to have everything large. Now everybody gets everything large. The pizzas have got bigger. All the all the, all the sizes of, of, of everything have got bigger. The, the packets of crisps have got bigger. The, um, the chocolate bars have got bigger. Everything has got bigger. And it just doesn't seem uh, to be helping anybody at all. So I'm not quite sure what you do about this because I'm not massively in favour of getting a government uh, to make rules and regulations about what you're allowed to buy and what you're not allowed to buy. Because at the end of the day, surely the whole point is uh, that you have personal choice. But if all the kids are getting too fat... Uh, because they're not doing enough exercise, because the combination uh, of of eating too much and just not doing P.E., because they only do P.E. twice a year, we talked about this the other day, is clearly uh, going to be a massive problem. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand uh, is the number. Uh, Baz says, there's two Tories in the news today. One made anti-Jewish comments. The other denied the Holocaust. Why don't they count? Uh, well, they do count, and you've just pointed out that there's two Tories in the news uh, who have been pulled up for that exact behaviour. However... Uh, What is in the news and what is making the news is the fact that the the Labour Party have for a long time uh, had an anti-Semitism problem in the party. It has been acknowledged by the people in the party. They have actually said that they want an investigation by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission and so therefore uh, they have a much bigger problem uh, than two rogue Tories. That would be my point, I suppose. And that's why uh, the Chief Rabbi is saying that the uh, likelihood of... Jeremy Corbyn becoming the next Prime Minister, is causing a great deal of anxiety to Jews in this country. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Daniel, uh, who is in Epsom. Hi, Daniel. Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, sir. What can I do for you?
7: Well, I've got three kids, mate, and we go to great lengths to make sure that they you know, that they eat the right things and we cook from scratch. And, I, you know, I know there's pressures out there, but I think if you do the right thing, you shouldn't have fat kids.
5: That's right. And also, I mean, they should be able to, even though they don't do as much exercise in school as, as maybe we did, you know, they sh- they, they're they still doing some, aren't they?
7: They are doing some, but I mean, I used to walk to school through South London from the age of about six. Well, right, you
5: probably had long. to run, didn't you?
7: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, was, it was a lot safer then. I know people say statistically it wasn't, but I felt a lot safer then. I mean, I, like most of the old London families, I've, we've been moving out for a long time now. Yeah, yeah. But, Back in the day, you know, we used to do pennies for the it at two eight o'clock at night when I was seven and eight years old and you were able to explore and go out and where now I would never let my kids do that. I think things have changed for the worse,
5: mate. Yeah, I, mean, I think they probably have. But, I mean, the world has changed for the worse, you might say. I mean, the world was a lot more innocent uh, when, when you and I were growing up. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the 70s quite a lot these days. But, I mean, when um, we didn't have an awful lot of choice, it wasn't so difficult to make a choice, was it? It wasn't, Mike, but I must confess, thank you, I'm in the McDonald's drive through right now,
7: so uh, I'm being a bit of a bad advocate for the kids, really.
5: <laughs> well, listen, it can do it occasionally, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I remember when the first McDonald's opened in North London, I was absolutely over the moon, I was delighted, I was like, this is great. But I didn't go there every single day, because it was like a special treat. Well,
7: I'll tell you a story, when the first one opened in Crystal Palace, yeah. my, mate, my mate and his brother and his mum went up there... And because no one knew what to order, his mum said, Hi, we'd like three McDonald's, please. Right. And they, they gave her like, <laughs> they, <were> the kids. <laughs> they gave her three Big Mac and chips. Like, they're only really young, my mate, and they couldn't even finish it. Yeah.
5: But, um, well, one of the things scary. that I was awful, which, which I think they did, which was really a bad move, was when they made that massive Big Mac. And I tried one of them, I couldn't finish it. It was awful. It was really disgusting. It's nice trying, though, to finish them, isn't it? <laughs> Well, no, I can eat a normal one, but not the big one. But listen, Daniel, thank you very much indeed. Daniel there uh, in Epsom talking about uh, the amount of food which is now available to people. Uh, and as Dion was saying, um, they're just in the shop all the time, buying stuff all the time, just because it's there. I don't understand why they feel the need to eat constantly throughout. You see these kids coming out of school and they're straight into the fish and chip shop when I'm going home uh, from here on the of an afternoon. And they're all eating big, big boxes of chips. And presumably they go home and their parents will say to them, have you had lunch? Oh, yeah, I had lunch at school. I also had a big bag of chips. And so now what you want now, dinner?
4: Unbelievable, right?
0: The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
0: On Talk Radio.
5: I'm not sure this actually counts as a Christmas song, does it? It Reminds me of that bit in The Sound of Music where all the Nazis are running around. I don't know why. But um, it doesn't remind me of Christmas at all, I'm afraid. But we are going to talk about Christmas trees because Rebecca Onslow Cole is here. She's a marketing director uh, from Crofton Cole Christmas Trees, which sounds very posh indeed. Rebecca, very good afternoon to you.
3: Hello. Well, we are very posh. Are oh, you? Yeah. And, and it's very apt that you're playing a European Christmas song there.
5: Yes, because of
3: the import of Christmas trees. Well,
5: exactly. Because I didn't know until today, Rebecca, that you can uh, bring a Christmas tree in over a certain height, a couple of meters or three meters, I think, but you need a passport for it.
3: Yeah. Well, this has been brought in to protect British trees. Um, there's a disease that's uh, started in Eastern Europe, spread across Europe. It's called eight-toothed bark beetle. So you imagine a little beetle with eight teeth. It starts at the bottom of the tree, works its way up, and then the tree slowly dies from the top down. Right. And it mainly affects the larger trees. So this law was brought in so this beetle doesn't get into the UK and kill all of our trees.
5: That's a good idea, I suppose. And is it working? Yes. then? Are we keeping these little beasties out?
3: Kind of. There's um, been a few cases in Kent... Um, obviously closer to the coast. But I think they've kind of got a grip on it.
5: OK. Um, and I mean, because it. these are bigger trees, I assume they're the sort of trees that would be used by maybe towns to put up outside or or big companies to put in the lobbies of their buildings and that kind of thing?
3: Yeah. So um, the, the, the article in The Sun today that was talking about the larger trees does refer to the town councils, yes. But really, there is no shortage of Christmas trees in the UK. And before I came on air, just to double-check, I thought I'd call our supplier Infinity mm. Christmas trees and they're the only supplier that carries the um grown in Britain certificates. So I thought if they know, then it's a fact. And I said, is there a shortage of Christmas trees above three metres in the UK? And they said, Absolutely not. And um, there's no reason why the councils can't call up their local supplier and request a British grown Christmas tree above yeah. three metres.
5: Yeah, because it does seem I mean, I don't want to use the word unpatriotic really, but I've just used it, so there we are. Um it doesn't why, why wouldn't why wouldn't you buy one from Britain?
3: Well there's so many benefits to buying in Britain. Of course when we plant Christmas trees in the UK, it's yeah. providing. Um, we're all talking about the environment at the moment. Obviously, having more trees in the UK is better for our for our environment, and also for all of the wildlife that lives within the the Christmas trees in Scotland and across uh, the UK and Wales. Yeah. Um, there's other benefits to buying in the UK. When you buy a Christmas tree from Scandinavia, for example, by the time it gets to your front door, it's been cut for three weeks. Mm. So the chance, you know, more and more people want to put their Christmas tree up on the 1st of December now. Um, that's mainly been bought in by the rise in artificial trees So people see on Instagram. Their friends put their tree up and right. it's artificial on the 1st of December and they want their real tree to go up then. And of course, then they want it to last until Christmas Day. And right. they go and buy from a supermarket that's imported the Christmas tree from Denmark or Norway. And it's been cut for three weeks. Whereas if you go and buy from us at Crofton Coal, we only buy British. It gets delivered to your door within days of it being cut. You go to your local farm, your local garden centre, check it's British grown, and it will easily last a month if you look after it properly. Yeah, right. There's so but, many benefits.
5: Yeah, there really really are. So, I mean, generally speaking, are the are the, are the foreign trees cheaper then if, if the supermarkets are buying them in bulk, or is it just the fact that they're buying them in bulk, period, that makes them cheaper?
3: They can be cheaper. Um, often the quality is not as good. Um, in the UK, uh, without getting too nerdy with you, it depends on the quality of the light and everything. A Christmas tree in Scotland, for example, will grow more slowly. Right. So we get a lot of our Christmas trees from Scotland. Because the, the days are shorter, there's less light. OK. So in order to get a seven-foot tree, it takes more years to grow to that height. So that's more people tending. Really? The so out. how long yeah. would it
5: take for a tree to grow to about seven feet, then? So
3: the normal rule is about a foot a year. OK. So if you want a seven-foot tree, a farmer has had to grow that tree for seven years. Right. Um, in Scotland, it is slightly longer. But then, what you get is because the tree grows up for out first and then up. Because it's going out for longer and then up, you get a bushier tree. Mm. And our customers really like those bushy, full. You know, well,
5: there's trees. a lot more variety now, isn't there? I mean, I, I you know, yeah. we used to only just be able to buy one kind of Christmas tree and it would always, yeah. you know, the, the, the needles would always fall off it after about, you know, three or four days and then you'd have to start sweeping them all up and then by the time you were throwing it away, it was practically bald, you know, whereas now yeah. you get these beautiful, fantastically um, thick and rich trees, don't you? Yeah, I mean, in
3: the old days, you used to be scared if the cat sneezed because all the needles would fall yeah. off the tree, but we sell at Crofton so & Coal, so... We only sell one type of Christmas tree, and that's the Nordman fir. And that's because it has, we call it non-drop, of course. You're going to get a few needles dropped. But, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a few over the, over the month. Um, that's the tree that, if, as long as you water it, um, you'll see that the needles, they're slightly thicker. Yeah. You can see that they're holding more moisture in them. If you remember 20 years ago, the, the needles were super sharp and pointy. Yes. Couldn't carry any moisture. So as soon as the air was dry they died and fell off other benefits of the rounded ones are if you have pets or small children crawling around do you remember the old ones used to go straight through your socks and the bottom of your foot yes um the 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 nordman fur um yeah they're so soft and rounded that you know they're not no
5: they're lovely aren't they they smell nice as well what about so do you always you should always put them in water i guess right
3: yeah i mean at croft and coal we only sell water holding stands and that's for that reason so Um, a Christmas tree should drink quite a lot of water. So the day that we we cut all of ours, so when they come in from our supplier, although they're only three days old, the sap will start to form a barrier across mm. the bottom. Yeah. So what we do for all our customers, because we don't want them to have to start cut, getting the hacksaw out, that's not the point of buying from Croft & Coal. The point with us is you get a home delivery Christmas tree delivered to your door in a box, and it's ready to put in the stand. So we recut all of ours and then send it out. And when you get your tree... we do next day delivery so when you get your tree it's been cut within 24 hours if you water it straight away so much water will go into that tree and it'll last so much longer
5: okay and what about what you put on it because there's always for me anyway that kind of dreaded moment where you bring the old lights out of the attic and you realize that they don't work or some part of it doesn't work i seem to be buying christmas lights every single year now
3: uh, well, in the old days, do you remember they used to have kind of like a little—you would pull out one bulb and the whole lot would go off. They were yeah. linked together in a in a chain. If, if one bulb broke, they all went off, and you had to spend hours sitting twiddling the bulbs yeah. to figure out which was the one. Well, that's all changed now. We have um, LED bulbs. I think I've got. I think the last bulbs. two
5: years I've been buying LED ones. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's what, we only sell those because again we try and make we try and take the hassle out to cri- Christmas at Crofton Cole. We don't want you to sit there. We also have where you have one plug and you you plug into that 100 light, and then into the end of that, you can plug in another 100 and another 100, rather than have multiple plugs, because otherwise you end up with that, you've got that multi-plug adapter. And it looks awful, yeah. Yeah, and yeah... So um, yeah, we try and there are. If you look into it now, rather than getting everything out the loft and using what you've used since the 80s, <laughs> things have moved on. So maybe. It's you know, not go that go bad. To okay. We'll help you out. <laughs>
5: All right. And what about um, if you, you know, if you, if you want your tree to last longer, does it matter how heavily you, you dress it, as it were?
3: Yeah, or? we have. We do have that sometimes. We've had it before in the past where someone said, "Oh, my tree's drooping. What can I do?" And we say, "Oh, well, send us a photo, and you see that they're hanging on solid glass baubles. Yeah, the yeah, You know." We have to be sensible here. It's a real, it's a living, it was a living thing. It's real, you know, it's not a fake tree. And I think people look at artificial trees that are plastic and they try and replicate that with a real tree. Mm. There's so many benefits to a real tree. They smell beautiful. It's so nice to have a piece of wild into our homes at Christmas. And that was the whole point of Christmas trees. It was supposed to be a symbol of everlasting love. Yes. So we bring it into the home in the darkest months to remind us that this isn't going to last forever, that an evergreen lasts forever and so does our life and our love on earth
5: and it's also it's also biodegradable as well isn't it
3: yeah we um we we actually are trying at the moment on our website to list the places that will come and collect your christmas tree and cut them down into chippings and then they will will use them for um you know when people have biomass burners and things like that so we actually have a biomass burner at our house and we have our christmas tree converted into chippings and put into the the burner so it's much better than buying a christmas tree that's been manufactured in china um, transported all the way halfway around the world, it's using harmful chemicals to create the plastics to have an artificial tree. Right. It's much better for the environment to have a real tree.
5: OK. And is your sort of busiest period the beginning of December or is it to people um, get it all the way through?
3: It depends. Online, we actually usually start sales um, online on the 1st of November, but this year we had so many customers get in touch in October asking when they could order their tree that so we had to bring the, the date open that you could pre-order. Um, so that was crazy. We had a really, we've been really busy throughout the end of October and November really? of online sales. Yeah, it's actually we actually last year are busy. We were actually busier online with our sales in November than December. I mean, you pre-order your tree with us, so you choose a delivery date that suits you. Okay. In December, and um, then then it will arrive on that date. And then once December starts, you can either choose a date or you get next day delivery. But we're definitely finding people are getting more organised about their tree planning it into the future and now we're just busy sending them all out so yesterday was the first day that the first christmas trees went out which is busy for us but it's also super exciting because we start to get the messages on social media of people putting their trees up and people phone us to say thank you and then all of the hard work kind of we start to get that warm fuzzy christmas feel from now on so yeah
5: so what do you do like the rest of the year like january to october what do you do for, for then
3: well, we have, we, we have lots going on this year. We've introduced loads of new products to our range. So we've introduced Christmas in a box. So as well as getting your Christmas tree in an easy-to-open hexagonal box, within that you can now get your real um, wreaths that okay. are all made in Scotland. Right. You can get candles that are made in the Cotswolds. You can get wrapping paper that's designed and printed up in Yorkshire. So we're trying to make, keep it all British. And so all year we are researching, working with our customers to see what products they'd like. And we want to make it so that you go online in November, you choose a date, you choose your wrap, gift wrap, cards, wreath, tree, and everything arrives in one box on the day you choose and you can start Christmas.
5: Marvellous. Well, I should look forward to it. I'm going to have a look on your website even as we speak. Rebecca Onslow-Cole, thank you very much indeed. Marketing Director from Coff- Croft and Cole Christmas Tree Trees. If you don't want to go and pick one out from a farm, if you don't want to go down your local garden centre, you can get one from them uh, and they'll deliver it to your house.